Wasn't that incredible this morning? Thank y'all so much for y'all's musical talents and how you worship God. Well, I'll start with a little story and a confession. So we have uh, Valentine's Day coming up this week. I would not consider myself to be a romantic. It agrees, so we'll back up this way. Might be needing a new wire on this mic. So, let, let me put this in perspective. This isn't a new development. Me and my wife's first date was February 27th. Y'all get that date, February 27th. I knew I was going to ask her out way before then. But let's pick a weekend. Valentine's weekend? Nah, too much pressure. <laughs> Week after Valentine's? Nah, that's too close to know she know I dodged it. So let's wait to the end of the month, 27th. And so that shows my romantic bone. Now, I will make a comparison. Romantic love is a temporary concept. You, you may fall in love romantically with someone, and it's hot and fury and, you know, all this kind of stuff. You, you're on the phone if you're apart for hours at a time. You can't wait till you see them, you know, all this kind of stuff. But that lasts. Anyone who has been married more than five minutes knows that only love that lasts is a true covenant love. Because in covenant love, there are periods of romanticism and these things that you, you do as a couple that you grow together in your relationship. But covenant love gets you through those hard times. It sees you through times when a romantic love will fail. Who watches rom-coms? I mean, maybe you shouldn't raise your hand. we got a couple raising your hand. But, but this is these romantic comedy movies. You find them all the time. And, and they're always some kind of rushing at the airport scene where they're, they're apart this whole time and they come together at the end. Well, if you've ever seen any of these that have a sequel, a few of them do, the sequel's fairly honest, aren't they? They usually start with a scene where the couple who so madly fell in love before are now separated and something in the second movie has to bring them back together again. So we know that romantic love can fail us. And so today, my text isn't that beautiful one from uh, Corinthians that was read today. That's a great one read at weddings. talks about love. We envision God's love in this verses, but we also see the love between a, a husband and wife or a future husband and wife. Well, my, today, my text comes from the book of Ezekiel, a 6th century prophet whose message was lamentation, mourning, and woe. Y'all can laugh at that. So our Valentine's message is going to be in Lamentations, Mourning, and Woe. Well, not exactly, but we're going to look at this prophet. Because this is really a continuation of revival. We've been talking since the beginning of the year about the greatest commandment or about the, the great commission. And what it means for us. That, that for some people, this was a rallying cry for overseas foreign mission work. And for many years, the church supported that effort in it. But sometimes we got in our mindset that mission work can only be done on the other side of a body of salt water. It's not true. Mission work is done outside our door to our own vocation and our own calling. And so today we're going to look at a prophet. A prophet who came from a priestly line who was called. Now, who just loves reading the book of Ezekiel? 
Nobody? Why is that? Well, if you open the first few pages of this book, you will notice there is a vision. There's a vision of God, and it's incredible. Now, you can do this now if you're not paying attention to me now. I'd rather you be doing something productive. But Google the vision of Ezekiel for the artwork associated with this vision. Now, you will notice that the artwork will look like everything from a heavy metal band cover to proof that aliens have visited our planet. I'm not kidding on this. You need to look it up. But some people will use these texts to show how aliens have visited us before, and they connect this vision to flying saucers and lights coming out of it. I mean, this is an incredible work, an incredible vision. But how would you describe the glory of God? Do you remember Peter on the Mount of Transfiguration, just kind of babbling off, well, let me build you a tent so you can stay a little bit longer, you know, this kind of thing? Well, Ezekiel had a similar experience. And it starts... Um, Today in our lesson in uh, chapter 3, 16, it says, And at the end of seven days, the word of the Lord came to me, son of man. Do you know what he was doing before that seven days? Because the vision precedes this in the context. He sat there overwhelmed. He was puzzled. So if you've attempted to study this work, even this great prophet... This one who would foretell so many events that have come true. Sat there, bewildered, unsure how to move forward. So it's almost like there's a second call. And there's this, this vision and then this commission. And so today we're going to look at the commission. It, it's more that we can kind of handle and digest. But so who is this Ezekiel? Ezekiel came from a priestly lineage. So he was a priest of of Israel, Judah. So, I mean, he had a ceremonial title. He did certain things for the community. But he didn't really get to do what he used to. Because Ezekiel lived in a time period of much chaos. Especially for his people. So, he lands in between the uh, destruction of the northern kingdom, Israel... The first waves of exportation into exile. So he's one of these early exile. So he's writing this book, not from Jerusalem, but from a land in Babylon under foreign powers. But also spanning his time and through these visions, we will see that he's foretelling the destruction of the rest of his homeland. Jerusalem and the temple. Their symbol that God is present with him. And so there is kind of a revisioning. What does it mean to be God's people when we don't sense his presence like we once did? When the temple is gone, when the place where God is supposed to dwell is no longer with us. Now, if you ever get called to be a prophet... Try to run from it because it's not a good calling. <laughs> this wasn't a good one for Ezekiel. And he is called to do some strange things. He does things, these sign actions. I mean, he can't even mourn for the death of his wife because of the mourning of Israel and all these things that will be take place. He crawls through brick walls and does all these weird things. And 
Uh, God one time calls them to bake bread. Have you ever heard of Ezekiel bread? If you're kind of health nut, you may have. There's a recipe for how to make his bread. Original recipe called for cooking it over human dung. He did complain about this when he said, God, you know, I've never defiled myself. And God said, okay, you, you can use uh, regular cooking stuff. So we're like, good, at least that, that took place. And so we have this in this story. But the story of Ezekiel is the story of the people. He is called to be an, a prophet, a priest, an intermediary for the people, a spokesman. He is supposed to carry a message from the Lord and give it to the people. It is a continuation today. People are risen, are called to carry a word for the Lord. Now, I was reading um, a commentary. It was talking about what a prophet was and all these kind of different things. And there's one thing you'll notice that prophets arise at certain time periods in history. Now, there's these kind of pre-classical and classical prophets. It's not the same sense that you're probably thinking from literary terms. But basically, in the classical sense, Ezekiel was one. There's a book of collections of the oracles and visions that he saw. A pre-classical prophet, on the other hand, is one that would come before. So like Elijah, Elisha, these kind of people. There's stories of their prophetic role in the life of Israel, but there's not books written on them. Well, history, history told the people of Israel, we might need to start paying attention to these guys. Around 722 B.C., the northern empire was destroyed. And there was prophets who were sent to proclaim a message. And now they are having visions of Jerusalem being destroyed. So people started paying attention. Not everyone, of course. But there was groups around certain prophets, and they started collecting these writings. Sometimes the prophet themselves collected it, and sometimes it was like this school of disciples that collected their work so that they would survive. Told in first person, second person, third person. I mean, it's different ways. So they started paying attention to these prophets because what they were saying was come true. But there was also a caveat here. There were some that claimed to be prophets because they were looking for a sense of power in a community. And there's instructions way back in Deuteronomy that says, how do you know who a prophet really is? How do you know when someone is, God is speaking directly to them? There's not like a um, piece of paper that says this guy is a certified prophet. There are certified pieces of paper about some of these people, but we're not going to go into that today. And so in Deuteronomy it tells you if what they say comes to pass, the way they say it, that person is a prophet and they speak for the Lord. If what they say does not come to pass, then that person is not from the Lord. Now, sometimes your calling was tough because you are tailing events that will happen generations after you. And that's something. You're going to be vindicated in your job several generations after your job ended, after your life was gone and you're buried and you're nothing but bones and dust. It's a tough calling, isn't it? And so now we have this 6th century prophet who is working from a land that is not his own. Surrounded by people who speak strange languages. 
But he is called to go to his people. Those that he can communicate. Not to a hard language as the Bible describes it. But to his own people. He is called to be a watchman. So let's listen to the calling. You'll find this in chapter 3 starting in verse 16. It says, At the end of seven days the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. Whenever you hear a word from my mouth, you shall give them warning for me. If I say to the wicked, you shall surely die, and you give him no warning, nor speak to warn the wicked from his wicked way, in order to save his life, that wicked person shall die for his iniquity. But his blood I will require at your hand. But if you warn the wicked, and he does not turn from his wickedness, or from his wicked way, he shall die for his iniquity, but you will have delivered your soul. Again, if a righteous person turns from his righteousness and commits injustice and I lay a stumbling block before him, he shall die because you have not warned him. He shall die for his sin and his righteous deeds that he has done shall not be remembered. But his blood I require at your hands. But if you warn the righteous person not to sin and he does not sin, he shall surely live. Because he took warning, and you will have delivered your soul. A little bit of accountability there for this prophet, isn't it? And so who are these wicked and these righteous people? They live in this exilic community. They are castaways from the land of Jerusalem. They were probably well-to-do educated people. Because they had some kind of value for the Babylonians. They were special. They could contribute to society, build a new place. But they had to figure out what life was going to be like without their homeland, without their temple, without their place of worship. They were a religious body, one governed by God directly, that had kings seated, 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 something. On the throne, anyways, you can follow that train of thought. From a Davidic line. So from the line of David. What were they going to do? No more king, no more temple. How were they going to live? Were they going to live like the pagans that surrounded them? The wicked people that were transferred. Because not everyone was innocent, right? Some of them would go to temple when they were supposed to because that was their duty in town. But they lived an unholy life away from God. In fact, you can trace the history, and that's kind of what got them in the trouble in the first place. So among this community, there were some that never really knew God. But yet at the same time, there were some that did know God and did their best probably in their homeland when things were going their way. But now times have gotten tough, so they have drifted away. So Ezekiel is called to be a watchman. What's a watchman? Think about fortified cities. Think about boundaries. A watchman is a defensive military position, isn't it? It is one who looks out. Looks out not just for an enemy attack, but they are called to pay attention to what the enemy's doing. 
But if they see something that will bring danger to the community, they are to call and bring attention to it. They are to call the soldiers to their post and for the civilians to take cover. It's a defensive position. Without a washman, sneak attacks could come and obliterate a town before anyone would be ready. So God has sent to the people a protector in time of judgment. In a time where people mourn. When there is great woe and lamentations. The love of God is different than romantic comedies will teach you about love. For God is a sovereign God and He has a plan of history. It unfolds differently. We are given free will and we are to ask to, to participate in God's sovereign plan. But sometimes us humans, us folks down here, screw it up. And those chosen people that were chosen to see God from the dawns of Abraham until the fall of the kingdom. They had a chance. And most of them messed it up. And so that's why invaders came and conquered the north and destroyed their cities and their strongholds. And that's why this seemingly unpregnantable city on a hill, that the only way to get there is to go up, that had natural defenses and built walls. It was the jewel of their country, Jerusalem. Why it could withstand many invaders, it too would come to an end. Because God didn't live in bricks and stones, but in the hearts of the people. And so in the story of Ezekiel, we'll see that there is a change. It's not about a physical location, much like this building, but it's about the people who have gathered in his name. It is about a people who come together and let God live in their hearts. That is where the law will be written. But today, Ezekiel is called... He is called to be their watchman. He is called to account. Now, when we talk about missions, and we realize that we don't have to go overseas to have missions take place in our community, we realize that we have a mission here in our own hometown. Some of you may indeed be called to go serve another people group other than your own. But I imagine most of us, our calling is going to be around here. We may never even change our address over the course of our life. Some of us may be called to move. Move far away or maybe just down the street. But we all have a plan and we all have a calling. And as Christ died for each and every one of us, He called us to be His disciples. And in being His disciples, we are to share the gospel message that we have heard that has saved us, that has called us out of the darkness into the light. But given this grace and mercy that God has bestowed on each and every one of us, there is a responsibility in that. It is the responsibility of this watchman. It says, go to those wicked people, warn them of their ways. 
There is a calling to each of us to share the gospel to unreached groups, to people in our own neighborhood that have not heard the gospel. The more secular we become as a nation, the more opportunities we are given. Because our culture pushes away people from the gospel. That calls us to arms as believers. That calls us to carry a message. The only one that will truly bring peace to this world. And it is God and His grace for humanity. And so if we fail to warn those wicked people. And we do not share with them the recipe of their own peace. We will be held accountable for those that God puts in our life. Scary, isn't it? If we see someone who was strong in the faith and who has slipped away, and we do not encourage them to come back, we will be held accountable for that. In the story of Ezekiel, we'll find two facets. Individually, we will be held accountable for how we live our lives. God will judge us by our own record. Our mama and daddy can't look out for us when it comes to this. It will purely be by what we do. But in the second avenue, there is a corporate dimension. There is the gathering of a people, of a nation, of a new kingdom, a kingdom of God. It's not going to be through these earthly rulers. But it's going to be in each of our hearts. So we have to gather and look out for one another. Those righteous people. <laughs> if you believe in Jesus Christ, would you believe yourself to be righteous? <laughs> Not really, do you? You think about the things I do. But if Christ lives in you, you are righteous. Because you are in a right standing of the Father. And that's what it's about. We may mess up. We may backslide. That's why we have each and every one of us here today to look out for us. To draw us back into community. So when you hear people say, oh, I can worship God just fine from a boat or from a golf course. From a football game, maybe. They are neglecting the corporate side of worship. For Christ died for you, but he died for all. John 3.16, how does it go? Does it say Christ died for just you individually and you're okay if you don't tell anybody else about it? No. He died for the whole world so that all may come. All may have eternal life. To be righteous and right standings before the Father. And so when we think about Valentine's Day, and we think about romantic love, don't ever put that on God. That is not the kind of love that God has for you. God loves you with a covenant love. He has given us a promise, and He has sealed that promise with the blood of His own Son, who died on the cross for your sins, to take those wicked people standing in front of them and wash them white as snow, and to give them life. For if you have ever entered a covenant relationship with someone, and you stand by, by it. 
it will bridge the gaps of the other's failures. Because if you've been married longer than five minutes, you know that if you're looking for your partner to complete you, to fulfill you, to, to close that gap in your heart, you're destined for failure. But if you have committed to each other, that you will have a covenant love. The love that God shows us with humanity. In the beginning, when God created the earth, He placed two people. And He chose to love them in a covenant kind of love. They messed up. He chose a whole people group. They messed up. And now He chooses us. His church. And we'll mess up. But He calls us to each accountability. We're responsible for what we do, but we're also responsible for each and every one here. If we fail to help a friend out of a ditch, what kind of friend are we really are? So God loves you with a covenant love. It bridges your failures. It teaches you what true love really means. And so God sends these watchmen this watchman of Israel he sent when everything looks bad. It's not easy. It's not easy telling somebody they're wrong, is it? Some people like to, but they also fail to look back at themselves. So I have to ask you, what do you envision God's glory to be like? Is it too incredible to put in words? If you can describe it, you might be off a little bit because it'll be more wonderful than anything we can put into words, into writing, into songs. But what is your calling? Where have you been called to serve? If you claim Jesus Christ as your Savior, you have been called. If you don't know where that is, it is time to hit your knees and pray that God would reveal it to you. And it could be where you're at presently. And where you're at, you are responsible for those that Christ will put in your path. Isn't it something? God's love for us. Please join with me in a word of prayer. Our good and gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your great love. A love that covers up our failures. A love that asks us all to come together. But Lord, keep in our mind that we are responsible for a call. Because you are indeed a holy God. We are responsible for how we live. We are responsible for how we conduct ourselves. Lord, in just a few moments, we will call for an invitation. And Lord, I ask those who have not felt your love, ask that their hearts be open today. And today will be the day that they will let you reign supreme in their lives. Lord, be with us as we leave today so that we may 
have the courage and the strength to fulfill the calling that you have placed on our lives. It is in your name we pray. Amen. And now as we enter our time of invitation, if you have decided to let Jesus be your Savior, that you'll repent of your ways and come to Him, please come forward at this time. If you decided that First Baptist Church of Floydata should be your home church and God is pressing you to join with us, please do so. Because following Christ is more than our individual efforts. It takes a community. If you're in need of prayer, please come forward at this time.